The following podcast was produced by Latter Day Radio. And we're continuing our conversation about the 1978 revelation on the priesthood, allowing all worthy male members of the church, regardless of color or race, to receive the priesthood and participate with their families and all blessings that the church has to offer. And we're here with a couple of old friends. Old friends, not necessarily old. The Barlows, Beryl and Marilyn Barlow. Beryl was our bishop many, many years ago when Marilyn and my wife Christy had little tiny kids running around the house. But in the meantime, they've served a couple of missions in Africa. And we'd like to ask them a few questions about that experience as it relates specifically to the 1978 revelation. So, Beryl and Marilyn, just give us a little introduction about who you are, what you've been doing, where you give us an overview of your church service in the Dark Continent. Uh, I'm Farrell Barlow. I've come from South Georgia. I was raised in Georgia and grew up there until I went on my mission. And we have together uh, served four missions now in Africa. And uh, we feel part African. Well, we are, two of our missions were humanitarian missions. And, uh, and then we had one where we were water specialists and where we went to Uganda, um, Congo, Burundi, and Kenya doing water projects. And then we had our last mission was to the Lubumbashi mission, which was um, in, in the Congo. And we uh, just were service missionaries while we were there. Regular, regular old service missionaries. Regular old service missionaries, whatever needed to be done. Well, that's what we did in Germany. I guess you call it, we call it MLS, Member and Leader Support Missionaries. So you helped the missionaries, you helped the members, you did what needed to be done. We did. That's what we did in Lubumbashi. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is an exciting time uh, to be living when we have the gospel spread around the world in so many places. The first question I'd like to ask you is, let's go back 40 years, because today is the actual day that the letter was dated that you can read about in the Doctrine and Covenants when the First Presidency issued that letter. Most people didn't get it till the following day, but on the 8th of June, 1978, they issued the letter that announced the receipt of a revelation that all worthy male members of the church, regardless of race or color, could have the priesthood and they and their families could then benefit from the blessings that come there from, for example, in the temple. So give us an idea of where you were, how you heard about it, and what's happened in the meantime, and specifically how it's related to you and your personal lives. When that... Uh information was given out, I was serving in the stake presidency in the stake in Taylorsville, and we were down at Aspen Grove uh, with an early youth conference, and I did not believe that this was real information because I couldn't remember a time when the first presidency had issued such a humongous uh, notification through the media. 
in my experience, uh, would always have letters come to the church leaders and then announced to the press and to the media. But this was a great, great thing uh, in my life to see all worthy males be able to receive the priesthood and, and families go to the temple. What a, what a great thing. Well, I haven't grown up in Utah. I had very few uh, experiences with the black population in, in the United States. But, um, of course, that was wonderful information because we are, it seemed like we were always limited on what we could, how we could answer questions and how we could share our, our thoughts with people because we, we had a hard time understanding why that was, only that the Lord had not done that yet. So we are so, we were very excited uh, to think that we there were no barriers anymore. Everything could be um, open to all people, and that was a glorious day, I thought, for all of us. And I, and I like that phrase, Marilyn, no barriers. It's um, a joyful thing, isn't it? Now, take us through your experience, experiences, these four missions that you served in Africa. What, have, what did you learn about the African people and their as I referred earlier in an earlier segment, how meek and lonely of heart they are and how prepared then as a result of that humility to accept the gospel. I think one of the uh, things we learned when we went to Africa was that um, the Western culture and the African culture are never meet. Their, their ideas of what is, um, their basic standards are different and that, we had a struggle at first to try to figure out what was honesty, what was uh, productivity, what was provident living, those kind of things. Because in Africa, those words have different meanings. And so we struggled to might figure that out. But once we figured it out, we started observing that in the members of the church there, they were having a cultural change to adapt to what the church's understanding was of, of those uh, principles and um it was a struggle for a lot of the people to come to understand that um, that they had to have one tribe. In Africa, there are many tribes, and they had to learn to be one tribe, the one, and that was the tribe of Jesus Christ. And as the members grew and, and served in the church, and we saw those changes happening, that they we were abandoning those um, things that were so culturally defining in their lives, and and becoming part of, a, of the real tribe, the tribe of Jesus Christ. That's really a great way to put it. To be tribal is not necessarily what the Lord had in mind, just like that broadcast last week, the B1 broadcast. Uh, and that's really what we're talking about, isn't it? That we are, we are one tribe. And I really like that, how you put that, Marilyn. Now, you, you had different responsibilities when you served your first mission in the DR Congo, Marilyn, you were a nurse and you did some neonatal work. And Farrell, if I understand correctly, you worked on a water project. So I would like to hear from Marilyn for a second about saving lives. And then Farrell, you also had a, a role in that as well. But I, you told us some stories before, but tell us about the saving lives and, and what you did. Well, we had... we. Uh, the neonatal program, a neonatal resuscitation program, is now called uh, Helping Babies Breathe. But it was a matter of bringing the 
finding a person that you could partner with, uh, an organization you could partner with, and then building a program. And the doctors would come over and set up the program of what the needs were in the area. And then uh, they would come back at a later date, about six months later, and produce the project. And our process was to prepare everybody and make sure we had everything in gear. The program was just erupted because they have so many children dying there that they, uh, the doctors were just excited to be able to teach these new um, ways of helping babies, saving babies. And one day we were had, had the project, and the, we got a call from way out in the middle of the Congo from a, a sister who had taken the class. She was not LDS, she was, uh, but she was a great woman, and we loved her, Mary Jose, and she called, and she's just screaming on the phone, and she says, Hallelujah, praise the Lord, praise the Bartles, praise the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're saving babies in Laputa. We're that, saving babies in Laputa. And that was so <laughs> exciting, because she had... Um, had an algorithm of that we have been she'd been taught at the at the course, and uh, this uh, her nurses had called her and said we can't get this baby to breathe and we're losing this baby and she ran and she did you follow the algorithm and they said no and she says well follow the algorithm she went through the algorithm and the baby started breathing and they were all converted that this just like that 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 was a that they could save babies if they would just use the information they had received in the course. So it was pretty exciting to see that happen. And the neonatal resuscitation program spread throughout the Congo. It's the doctors took over and did the teaching and we just had to almost supply them with the supplies for the course because they jumped right in and uh, just went, they just started teaching all over the Congo and it's now throughout the Congo. That program. Fantastic. In the course of doing that, uh, helping babies breathe, we found a partner in in the Congo, a native doctor, Dr. Ngoy, and he became so enthusiastic and so good at uh, producing and helping with this program that the need for doctors from the United States to come to mentor was no longer necessary. And uh, he went with us all over the places in the Congo where we were allowed to go and uh, he presented uh, in LDS buildings the Helping Babies Breathe program. He's a great, great asset to, to that program in the DR Congo. We'd like to also have you talk a little bit about, and we don't have a lot of time for this segment, but we'd like to st- at least start the conversation about the leadership you saw among these uh, African priesthood leaders, these bishops and elder scorn presidents. Why don't you tell us, a, give us a glimpse of that, and we'll come back to it after the break. I, I was amazed at how many people had left the Congo for education and become doctors and lawyers and engineers, professional people, and then felt a need to come back to their home, and they returned to the DR Congo and became leaders in the church. Uh, We had one bishop, uh, Bishop Kuteka, who was very, very faithful and a very sincere member of the church, and he was working in the government in the Department of Education, and uh, he was really 
uh, one of the uh, leaders in that area uh, in the church. We have some uh, a really cute story that maybe we can save and, and tell, but it, he is a, a big man, and he's very productive and um, a lot of sadness in his life because of living in Africa, and we learned to just love him and, and realize what a great leader he was in the church there. Well, we're going to go to break now, but we'll be back in a minute with the Barlows talking about their experience in Africa, in the DR Congo, and in Uganda, and where else was it? Kenya and Burundi. Kenya and Burundi. Get out your maps and you can follow the travels of the Barlows as we come back here on Latter-day Radio. More faith-affirming podcast content from Latter-day Radio coming your way. Stick around. This is Latter-day Radio on 1430 KLO World Class Talk. I'm Greg Gerard, and I'm here with my good friends, the Barlows, Marilyn and Farrell Barlow, who to date have served four missions in Africa, the Democratic Republic of Congo, in Uganda, in Kenya, and in Burundi. We began to talk a little bit about the African saints and how they've learned to be leaders. Apparently, from what you've told me, they're learning a lot faster than we had dreamed, and it's a, it's a miracle. It is a miracle, and the people have been very um, growing experiences every day, and they're learning to read their, uh, what is it called, their manual? Their handbook. Their handbook. We had uh, Bishop Kuteka in one of the wards that we attended, and one of the missionaries had left, and they had left one bag of men's clothes and one bag of women's clothes, a big bag full of clothes. And um, they said, just take these to whoever you can use them. So we knew that if we just took them out to the branch, that people would just fight over the clothes or they would, uh, the leaders would just take them themselves. So we went to the bishop and we told him we had these bags of clothes and we were not going to give them to anybody. We wanted to give them to him and he could use them as he saw fit. And we later learned that he went to his ward council and um, sat them all down and he said, we have been given these clothes to be given, distributed in our our ward here and um, I want right out for you to know that none of you are going to get any of these clothes. We are going to talk about who should get these clothes. And he individually picked up each piece of clothing and said, who in our ward do you think should have this shirt? Who's in need of this shirt? And the council decided together who each piece would be given, and then he assigned two people to take that piece of clothing to that person and give it to them. And I couldn't believe what a great leadership that was, a, te- a bishop teaching his ward council how to work as a ward council and how to care for the ward. And I was pretty impressed. I thought that was a great um, step towards uh, leadership that he had made. We saw other experiences like that, too. When uh, we were in Uganda, we were in Uganda in 2010-2011 as humanitarian missionaries, and we felt impressed to go down away from the center of strength to a city called Masaka, 
in Uganda and do a water project there. Our water projects that we did in that area were capturing springs. And we captured 80 springs, and then we also had a health and hygiene portion of that water project. And we had so many people as we did that project that wanted to know about the church that uh, the president, when we did the closing ceremony, President Jackson, our mission president, sent his assistants with us to the closing ceremony to talk to the people about the church. And we held this closing ceremony now at the Catholic diocese, right outside the Catholic uh, bishop's home and the big school. And he was very gracious and allowed us access to all the facilities there. And those assistants to the president were passing out pamphlets and copies of the Book of Mormon and all sorts of materials to people who were interested in the church. And after that ceremony, they went back. Uh, they were ready to be released and finish their mission, but they both extended their mission a couple of weeks, and they went back to Masaka and taught people in groups. And they had quite a few people join the church. And so President Jackson says, you guys made this mess, you go down there and fix it. And so <laughs> he assigned us to be the group leader in Masaka, and we travel two hours one way every Sunday to go down and hold a, a block of meetings with this group. We had a Ugandan in our home last week, Olivia, who came to visit, and she informed us that there are now 17 branches in, in the Masaka area. And they are experiencing in Africa that same type of growth everywhere the church is. One of the interesting things about that Masaka was the first branch president was called only six months after he was baptized. So you can see the need for um, missionaries, senior missionaries, to be uh, teaching and helping these uh, new branch presidents who have little experience in the church. They want so badly to do their work and to do it well, but they, they need guidance and direction, and uh, they were wonderful, wonderful people. I think that's one of the hallmarks of, of Africa, the humility of the people uh, with their near-poverty status, many of them. Uh, they're very humble, and they, uh, they have dreams, and they, they dream things, and then when these things come to pass, they take them at, at face value and, and act on it. And uh, we've often had the experience where people would, would tell us, uh, I had a dream last night, and, and I saw God, and you're him. <laughs> you're him. Well, so what did you say to him? I'm not him, but I'm his uh, messenger. And then, if we were lucky, we would have some full-time missionaries right there that we could turn that person over to. We had that experience in Congo Brazzaville when uh, we were walking down the street myself with two uh, native elders, and I was sunburned and glowing, and <laughs> and we heard the traffic start honking and cars screeching to a stop, and we looked and. Uh, a brother was running across the street, 
And he came up to me and he says, I had a dream last night and I saw God and you're him. And I told him, well, I am not him, but I am his messenger. And we, indicating the, the native missionaries, have a message from him for you. And uh, that brother was very receptive to the message after the elders quit laughing enough to thinking <laughs> that I'm, I'm God. That was quite amusing to them. One of the things that's really interesting with the, with the leadership there, the uh, returned missionaries are now the bishops, state presidents, and even uh, Elder Alunga, who was just called as a Area 70 this last general conference, was a returned missionary when we were there the first time. And he's been a state president and has now been called as an Area 70. So the, the ability of having missionaries to help the church grow is really growing. And we're getting into the second and some places, third generation members. So um, you can see how fast everything's growing and everybody's really, um, the church is well respected, especially in the Congo. We see it very well respected. And uh, you see these beautiful buildings going up and people come and say, uh, I want to come to your church. Will you invite me? And we say, you don't need an invitation. You can just come. Oh, I thought I had to have an invitation. And uh, we often see people out when we were doing our humanitarian work that wanted to know if we would invite them to church. When we first arrived in the Democratic Republic of Congo in 2007, uh, there was one mission, including the Democratic Republic of Congo and then the Republic of Congo and also Cameroon. And now in the Democratic Republic of Congo, where there was one mission then, there are four missions. And I think that uh, in this next change in, in July 1st, two of those missions will be have presidents that are native uh, Congolese. Congolese presidents. And we're just uh, astonished at the growth and the continual growth that the church is experiencing in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Talk for a minute about the people that you've met, that you've befriended. Some have actually come here to the States. Talk about a cultural shock. <laughs> we, uh, we've had that experience several times. When we were first in the Democratic Republic of Congo, we served there for 22 months almost, and then a replacement uh, came for us, and we were going to go home. And it was a very emotional time for both of us because we felt like we would never see these people again. And we had made such close friends, such great uh, relationships. And uh, imagine our surprise at how much we have interacted with these people since that time. Uh, we've been back uh, four missions. Uh, all four missions had some contact with the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, we had uh, a person who helped us there quite a bit, a bishop in the church, who worked in customs in the Duan, and uh, he wanted to come and visit in America. And so we said we would try to help him, and we tried. I don't think we had anything to do with his visa, but he did obtain a visa and came, and we invited him to our home for several days, and we thought that we would have a great visit. 
But his intention was not several days. It was several weeks, a month. <laughs> and so we had him and his wife and their young young child, a baby, here in our home for a month. And I think the greatest impact, the greatest impression that he received when he was here was probably at Costco. He couldn't believe this huge warehouse with consumer goods all available to be purchased. And he had he had purchased a camera that required batteries when he was in the Congo before he came so he could take a lot of pictures. When he got here and got to Costco, he saw the same camera, but it was a charge. A rechargeable. Charge and he was so upset that he had... And it was less money than what he had paid. Every, those kind of things, electronics in Africa is just extremely expensive and it's hard for people to have them. But he stood out on our front porch when the garbage trucks were coming through and he said, what is that? Said, They're picking up our garbage. They come right to your house and they pick it up. <laughs> and I said, and they furnish those cans so we can. And he was just enthralled and he stood out there and watched them pick up the whole circle of our neighborhood before he came back in. And another time he was he looked outside and he says, Where are all the people? You know, the Congo the Kinshasa, where we are the capital of the Congo, is um, about the size of the Salt Lake Valley. And it it has about eleven million people oh my in one place. And so you can't you can't even imagine the density of a population. Um, so he was worried, wondering where are all the people? Where can they be? Well, they're in their comfortable little houses. They're at work. <laughs> People have jobs and they work. <laughs> well, what a, what a great experience. Uh, I wish I'd been a mouse in your pocket. We served in uh, Germany and Switzerland and uh, much like it is here. So at any rate, this is uh, Latter-day Radio. We'll be back after these messages here on 1430 KLO, World Class Talk. The following podcast was produced by Latter-day Radio, originally broadcast on KLO in Salt Lake City, Utah. We're back on Latter-day Radio here on 1430 KLO, World Class Talk. If you've been listening since the beginning, then you know what today is and what we're discussing. The official public release of the announcement of what is now called Official Declaration Number 2 at the end of the Doctrine and Covenants. It was dated June 8, 1978 and was affirmed on September the 30th, 1978 in the semi-annual session of General Conference in the Tabernacle, in part the letter read, He has heard our prayers, and by revelation has confirmed that the long-promised day has come when every faithful, worthy man in the church may receive the holy priesthood with power to exercise its divine authority and enjoy with his loved ones every blessing that flows therefrom, including blessings of the temple. Since we began today, we've tracked down friends and neighbors who were adults then to learn their reaction, where they were, and what they were doing when they learned about the revelation. I'm Greg Gerard, and I'm here with my neighbor and ward member and friend, Don Gull, who in 1978 was working in broadcasting in Manhattan, and later was called to be a mission president in Ireland. He heard about the announcement at High Council meeting in Scarsdale, New York. 
So, Don, you said the priesthood revelation didn't come to you as a surprise. It wasn't a complete surprise, but it was uh, like even things we anticipate. When it actually happens, it is uh, perhaps more significant than you thought it was going to be emotionally. So for me, it was a, a deeply touching uh, event because I had anticipated it with joyful anticipation. I was looking forward to this happening because I worked with a lot of black people uh, in New York. And so um, to, to not have to deal with the issue of blacks in the priesthood from the same vantage point uh, was a relief to me. But it did open up some other challenges as to, well, then why now? You know, mm -hmm. Why didn't you do this before? And what led up to this? And why this problem over all these years? So it didn't exactly close the window. It opened some new windows. But it opened some windows of opportunity, of exploration, that might not have occurred otherwise. One of the deepest regrets of my life was a meeting I had uh, with a banker who was black. Um, at CBS, um, I, was, I was very young. I was in my late 20s, and um, I, had, um, I was responsible for banking relations for CBS, and I met with this banker who was black one day, and he asked me the question, why are blacks not allowed to hold the priesthood in your church? And I gave him the pat answer that had been uh, taught to me, uh, you know, over the years. And I didn't know really why, um, but it was the wrong answer. Uh, and it was, simply was not the truth. And I, I can't tell you how many times the, the deep regret down in my soul yeah. um, burns up, bubbles up. And how many times that's occurred over all these years. And if I could turn back the clock, I thought, is there some way I could ever find him <laughs> and sit down and talk with him and try to uh, explain to him the changes that have taken place and, and tell him how much I regret it. I, 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 would, I would imagine from that conversation that, um, that he would have never joined the church because of what I said, deep regret. So that was an element of the joy that I received when I knew that the blacks could have the priesthood and all worthy males could have the priesthood throughout the world. And I thought, oh, if I could have, if I could turn back the clocks and say, join the church and let's get you the priesthood, you know. <laughs> Enjoy the blessings. Enjoy the blessings of the priesthood. Now, as time went on, you had some challenges and responsibilities as a very young man in Ireland. Tell us how this opening up of the, the blessings to these people, uh, this particular group of people, helped the growth of the, of the church overall. Because in my perspective, it wasn't just the people of of color that benefited from this revelation, but the church as a whole. We have 16 million people today, and the growth of the church can be partly attributed to the fact that we're an inclusive, universal church. I think that's true. Um, in Ireland, there, there, you know, as a portion of the population, there are very few blacks. Right. Um, 
but I remember the, the, the impression that I had of the, of the potential of the growth of the church among black people uh, occurred at a mission president's conference in London uh, in 19, um, late 1986, and then another one in 1987. And at that time, mission presidents from Africa uh, were part of our area. And so they would meet with us a- in London. And I remember these mission presidents um, talking about uh, literal villages coming into the church, that the village elder would say, we're going to be Mormons and of course, everybody became a Mormon, and two weeks later, he'd say, "Well, I don't like the Mormons anymore." So, you know, so away went that congregation, um, and and there was there was some issues of you know how do we how do we get our arms around that? How do we assimilate these people and teach them leadership principles? Exactly, right? exactly, because you, uh, it, it's a little bit like uh, the, the challenge of uh, of China, uh, if the gospel goes over that country like a wave. Um, you know, what do you do with 10,000 people a, ch- a week joining the church who've been communists? Well, in, in a way, it's, uh, it's like um, a lot of people, black people, who have been raised in a completely different culture. Uh, all of a sudden, someone's an elders quorum president, and they say, what's an elders quorum president? You know, they don't have a clue what that means. Whereas to us, it's, uh, it's just part of our, our upbringing. But for them, it's completely new. How do you assimilate them? How do you train them? to administer the affairs of the church in, in the right way. So uh, a big challenge, but the growth of the church today is explosive in Africa. Um, I, you know, I, I work as a sealer in the temple, and there are black families that come to the temple all the time. Uh, and I, 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 I look at them um, with joy. I, I look at them and see these dignified, wonderful people there in the temple where there was a time in my life when they could not have entered. And it could not give me a greater sense of peace um, and um, and optimism for them and for the church generally. Uh, And I suspect we'll see key leadership positions in the church being occupied by blacks more and more and more as time goes by. So it's it's, has a significant impact and will continue to have a significant impact on the growth and development of the church. So, Don. Are there some parallels between taking the gospel to a place like China and making priesthood blessings available to blacks and people of African descent? I, I don't know that, uh, the, the, that the barrier uh, would be the same or that people would consider there being any kind of barrier to priesthood, um, receiving the priesthood in China, because it would never have been withheld from uh, a worthy male in China. But... They're withheld from the gospel by government policies. So right. is that is that a similar? That's guess what I'm getting at. Well, it's 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 more than that, if I may say. Okay. Um, it, it is a it is a culture. It's inbred in them. I can remember having a conversation with a young woman that my wife and I came to know very well, and um, she was a she was a communist, and she said to us at this lunch one day. You have something we don't have. What's that? She said, you have an anchor. We have no anchor. Hmm. Uh, and the anchor, of course, was that, uh, that we had the church, we had the gospel, we had something to hold on to that was more than, just, um, more than just a belief. In her mind, it was an anchor. And we, all, we, we can see the, um, 
we can see the imagery of an anchor in a ship, mm -hmm. you know, holding it fast to the ocean floor so that it's not blown about by the winds and the waves and so on. And, um, but um, I can remember uh, in 1987, again, going back to the times of mission president conferences in London, Elder Nelson had come back from Beijing on, on his way back to Salt Lake, had stopped in London and met with mission presidents. And he talked about the Chinese and the virtues of China. And, and he said, the time will come in which the gospel will go over that country like a wave. And he waved his hand in front hmm. of him. It will go over that country like a wave. And I can remember thinking about that uh, as we met with these Chinese people. And I would, uh, I would find lots of opportunities to talk about gospel principles and found them deeply touched by these gospel principles. Uh, they, they sensed the truth of it. Their souls sensed the truth of it. Uh, and, and, and I thought, I can't wait for the day in which that prophecy that I believe was a prophecy by the future president of the church would come to uh, would come to be, and hope that some way I could participate in that. I don't know that I will, but but I uh, I'm virtually certain the time will come in which the gospel will go through that country like a wave, and the challenge will be how to not just convert these people to the principles of the gospel but culturally how to convert them to how to administer the affairs of the church. And to some extent, how do we become converted to them? It's not just a matter of, of, of them being converted to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the church adapting things like buildings. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that we, we think we have to have a Wasatch Front you know, building in, in uh, Tianjin, China. Or in Guangzhou, you know, I mean, we don't have to have that. We, we do things their way. It, it doesn't affect the gospel at all. But um, So I think we're going to see a lot of adaptation uh, in Africa, in China, in these large populations, and whatever happens to the Muslim world. Let's I mean, you think about that, an awful lot of Muslims in the world. We're talking about over a billion people. Um, and um, so there's going to have to be some adaptation on our part in order to assimilate these people into the church that won't in any way affect the living of the gospel and the fulfillment of the oath and covenant of the priesthood among these people. So I, I see a lot of change that will take place uh, in the church and in these cultures in order to uh, have the world, literally the entire world, hear and receive the gospel of Christ. Thank you. Coming to the end of our segment here, but I would just say one thing. When the hand of the Lord takes a hold of our fate and destiny, we can expect that He knows what He's doing and He's anticipating uh, how we'll react to it. This podcast has been produced by Latter Day Radio. Visit latterdayradio.com for more information.